Welcome to this episode of Right Stuff, presented and produced by me, Chris Fitzgerald, through the Head Stuff Podcast Network. In this episode, I spoke to Helen Cullen, whose first novel, The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, has been out for a while in hardback and is just about to come out on paperback, and it comes highly recommended from me and my mother, who's reading it now. It's just, it's a really lovely read. Um, the characters are really relatable, and there's a warmth to the novel that makes it really enjoyable. And this chat was really enjoyable too with Helen, um, where she speaks about kind of what I found as a surprising approach that she took to writing the novel and all the things that she learned from it that are now helping her to write or have helped her to write the second novel. And she's really honest about the anxieties that she felt all the way through the process of getting her novel out to an audience. This starts with Helen reading from the first pages of The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, which I think will make you want to go out and read the rest of it. So here is Helen Cullen. Um, so the book begins with an epigraph from a John Don poem called to Sir Henry Wotton that reads more than kisses, letters mingle souls. And then we begin with chapter one. So lost letters have only one hope for survival. If they are caught between two worlds with an unclear destination and no address of sender, the lucky ones are redirected to the dead letters depot in East London for a final chance of redemption. Inside the damp, rising walls of a converted tea factory, letter detectives spend their days solving mysteries. Missing postcodes, illegible handwriting, rain-smudged ink, lost address labels, torn packages, forgotten street names. They are all culprits in the occurrence of missed birthdays, unknown test results, bruised hearts, unaccepted invitations, silenced confessions, unpaid bills and unanswered prayers. Instead of longed for missives, disappointment floods postboxes from Land's End to Dunnet Head. Hope fades a little more every day when doorbells don't chime and doormats don't thud. William Wolfe had worked as a letter detective for 11 years. He was one of an army of 30, having inherited his position from his beloved uncle Archie. Almost every Friday throughout William's childhood, Archie, clad in a lime green leather jacket, rode his yellow Honda Daydream 305 over for tea, eager to share fish and chips doused in salt and vinegar served with a garlic dip and tales of the treasures rescued that day. Listening to Archie opened William's mind to the myriad extraordinary stories that were unfolding every day in the lives of ordinary people. In a blue-lined copybook, he wrote his favourites and unwittingly began what would become a lifelong obsession with storytelling, domestic mysteries and the secret stranger's nurse. What surprised William most when he started working there himself was how little Archie had exaggerated. People send the strangest paraphernalia through the post. Incomprehensible and indefensible, sentimental and valuable, erotic and bizarre, alive and expired. In fact, it was the dead animals that so frequently found their way to the inner sanctum of the postal system that had inspired the dead letter depot's name. A photo taken in 1937, the year it was opened, showed the original postmaster, Mr. Frank Oliphant, holding a pheasant and hare aloft with three rabbits stretched on the table before him. By the time William joined in 1979, it was a much more irregular occurrence, of course, but the name still endured. He still felt Archie's presence amid the exposed red brick walls of the depot, and some of the older detectives sometimes called William by his uncle's name. Their physical similarities were striking. Muddy brown curls, chestnut beards flecked with rust, 
the almond-shaped hazel eyes that flickered between shades of emerald green and cocoa, the bump in the nose of all wolf men. In a vault of football field proportions hidden below Shoreditch High Street, row upon row of the Row upon row of the peculiar flotsam and jetsam of life awaited salvation. Pre-war tie soldiers, vinyl records, military memorabilia, astrology charts, paintings, pounds and pennies, wigs, musical instruments, fireworks, soap, cough mixture, uniforms, fur coats, boxes of buttons, chocolates, photo albums, porcelain teacups and saucers, teddy bears, medical samples, seedlings, weapons, laundry, fossils, dentures, feathers, gardening tools, books, books, books. Copious myths and legends passed from one colleague to another. Stories of the once lost but now found. Brilliant. Thanks a million, Helen. That's brilliant. <laughs> oh. um, love that. Like such a great way to start the novel and really kind of sucks you in from the start. And loads to ask about that. But first of all, like the that premise and the idea of there being a dead letter depot. I'd never heard of anything like it before. And it kind of makes sense. But is it a real thing? And like, well, when did I you come across it? Well, the funny thing is, when I came up with the what I thought was the concept of the Dead Letters Depot for the novel, I really believed that it was something that I had pulled out of my imagination. But it must have been a reference that I'd heard of somewhere that had sunk into my brain, because after I'd made it the whole way through the first draft of the book, I then discovered that these Dead Letter Depots exist and um, came across an article in The Guardian where someone had interviewed a real life letter detective in the in the centre in, Be- in Belfast that looks after all the mail for the UK. In Ireland, we don't have one particular office that looks after all the lost letters. They're kind of handled more locally, I believe, in the different post offices around the country. But for all of the UK, there's a massive what they call a mail return centre in Belfast. And there are a couple of them across America where there are people really doing this as a job. And it was so amazing to me because even though I had been plucking all of these artifacts and letters and objects that had been lost in the post out of my imagination, the things that were actually discovered in the real depots were even more fantastical than anything I could have dreamed of. So it's just remarkable. And you came across all of that after you had written the novel? Yeah, well, after I'd made it through the first draft and Mm. then I didn't... um, I didn't really use any of the new material that I discovered, like any of the real life things, but I just um, allowed it to sort of, you know, inspire me in the sense that Mm. this was a real thing that was happening. And I felt kind of encouraged by the fact that all these, you know, miraculous things turned up in the post and that they had people doing this job and they had undertaken these massive missions to return things in the post throughout the years. So it was really inspiring to realize that it was something that was actually going on somewhere. I'd love to visit the depot. I keep saying this in the hope that someone from the depot in Belfast (laughs) hears me and says, come on over. But it hasn't (laughs) happened so far. (laughs) and do they call them detectives as well? Or was that? I, I, I don't think that's their official title. Yeah, but when yeah, they've yeah. been when they've done interviews with them or when they've talked in the press, that's sort of how they refer to their job. You know that, oh, you know, we're kind of detectives. But oh. um, I'm sure they have a much more professional sounding title. And hopefully they're a lot more efficient than the shower that I have put together <laughs> in this book. <laughs> well, some of the funniest scenes are in the depot, I have to say. And uh, like I had the experience recently of kind of just for a bit of research I'm doing, just to go to an archive of letters that's in the, the military barracks in Dublin like between people who had taken part in a kind of oral history project about the 1916 rising back in the 40s and 50s so I just kind of got to read the letters between the military bureau and the actual participants in the rising and stuff and um, just the beauty of them like the handwriting alone and these were you know from people who you know like farmers from Monaghan and you know just people from every nook and cranny of the country who had this amazing fluency when writing letters Um, 
And your book is real kind of testimony to letter writing as well. That's another huge aspect of it. Like where did that love come from or has it always been there and is it something that you still practice? Well, I think I've always been um, really interested in letters and letter writing and it was always part of my life. I think I was quite lucky that my mother, when I was little, started me writing letters to people and really encouraged it, you know, and maybe because it was still something that was very much in her living memory in her generation that people still wrote letters. It was something that she passed on. And it's really interesting what you say about the archive, that everybody was so good at it and had this fluency of self-expression that I think has kind of fallen away with this lost art of letter writing, because how often nowadays are we really asked to express ourselves in that kind of meditative way of sitting down and thinking about composing how we're feeling and thinking and what's happening in our lives to someone who's far away from us. I know that we email and we text and we WhatsApp and we're on social media, but it's it's a much different kind of discipline because it's so immediate and it's so efficient. And I don't think we kind of luxuriated in the same way that we would have when we were writing letters all of the time. Yeah. So and I think it's a it's a kind of a real lost art that has fallen away when, as you say, every single person would have really been trained into how to write a letter and felt quite comfortable doing it. Yeah. And there's such a kind of warmth to them. And then that adds to the warmth of your book a lot as well. And another aspect that adds to that is um, I guess as like letters are to emails what vinyl is to MP3 in a way. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and you kind of you, music is peppered all through the novel. And I presume that's another love of yours. I know that you worked in RT for a few years. Like that was another dream job of yours work with Dave Fanning. That was also an ambition of mine years ago. But oh. I was kind of jealous when I heard you got that oh, position. Oh, there's still time. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do see him around. Um, but the, the music that made its way into the novel, was that something that was really important to you as well? And it, like to me, it really... It's something that I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, why don't more people do this? Because it adds to the atmosphere of a scene as well. You know, when you can kind of, especially if you know the music, of course, and you can yeah, kind of oh, hear that in the background. I'm so glad that you noticed that. It was something that was really important to me when I was writing. I mean, music and literature are my two great loves. So I guess they were always going to collide when I tried to do something, any kind of creative project. But for me, it really... Well, for starters, whenever I was trying to conjure up the kind of feeling or the emotion or the atmosphere that I wanted to in a chapter, I'd often listen to music that I felt captured the essence of that to help me kind of bridge the gap between the real world and the fictional world of the book. So I was listening to music a lot, you know, before I would start writing and I still do with the new book as well. But I think for me, it was a real deepening of my relationship with the characters, understanding the music that they listen to and at particular moments. So like when William Wolfe, the protagonist, is walking across the Haypenny Bridge in the rain, listening to the Smiths, I know exactly you know, what mood he's in and what's happening in his world. And I just feel like really in the moment with him in a way that maybe just comes from the fact that you know the music was so much a soundtrack to my life the whole way through. So I think it, people often ask me, you know, how much of myself is in the book or as much of it autobiographical. And I think the only real definite part of me that's there is that I've given the characters music that I loved and um, use that to kind of help inform the story in the sense of, well, if they're listening to this at this moment, what how just what was that revealed to us about their emotional state or, you know, where they're feeling about their place in the universe at that time. So for actually the paperback that's coming out in May, I've made a Spotify playlist and listed all the track listings at the front of the book. Oh, so if people aren't familiar with the music, they can look it up and listen to it at the time when they're reading the chapter. And I'd love to think of people doing yeah. that, you know, kind of listening yeah. along. Multi-sensory experience. <laughs> <laughs> but that, um, like that scene from 
just a minute quiz must have been from experience as well was it or did yeah, you work with Larry Gogan in the past? I did so okay. that was quite funny because yeah. um I guess it's like every everyone or well most people when they're writing a book you never in a million years think it's actually going to be published so at the time when I wrote in it was almost like just a little uh you know like little in joke mm. you know for me that I wrote in this scene because I would have gone out with Larry to see the broadcasters and was the broadcast assistant who would say oh well she got 17 Larry didn't she do well and you know <laughs> what did she weigh no we've a Cadbury's hamper or whatever so when yeah. I was trying to think of the spirit of Dublin and how you could really capture that in a moment for me the first one of the first things that jumped out at me was like Larry Gogan in the broadcaster and Stevens Green so it just felt like a natural thing for me that he would be there but I never obviously in a million years thought that one day I would be you know ringing him up and going Larry there's something I have to tell you <laughs> you know my book's been published and you're in it and oh, I hope lovely. you don't mind <laughs> yeah I'm sure he was delighted um, I was like he's yeah. Larry's amazing and it was really funny because I remember years ago him telling me that um he was in a lift with Roddy Doyle and Roddy was really upset because in in um one of the books the dog was called Larry Gogan yeah. and um he was worried that Larry would be upset but Larry just thought it was really funny and then when but when the book moved to the UK they changed it to Terry Wogan which oh, is awful oh, gosh. oh no so I was like don't worry you know it's going to be Larry Gogan in every edition in every language in every country you know there's no way that he's changing someone else <laughs> excellent um but at the core of the novel as well Helen is it there's definitely it's, it's a love story essentially I, I guess and the the kind of relationship and the kind of love story that you're telling it's one that's I suppose not often depicted in a lot of novels or a lot of other stories or popular culture in general it's kind of when relationships reach a point of semi-contempt because of over-familiarity, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of fading that might happen because of that. And that's really kind of refreshing to read about that part of a relationship. Um, was that something that was important to you as well? Or was that something that you had in mind from the start? Or like, I presume you started with the premise of the letters and the depot and then kind of the yeah. the love story came out of that. Well, thanks so much for saying that. I'm glad that that um, ra- that rang true for you. I guess there, there's a few things going on there. The book sort of happened kind of backwards for me in, in terms of how it was built up. The The idea of um, I, the letter writing bit was sort of the very start. When I sat down to write this book, the first thing I wrote, the first line on the page was that line from the poem, the more than kisses, letters mingle souls. And I had that in my head from when I'd read that in soundings, you know, during the leaving cert. Oh, yeah. And it had always stayed with me. And I really wanted to look at the lost art of letter writing and the power of letters as a way of communicating in a different way. And I was really interested in this idea about how if if you only met someone through their letters, you know, I was thinking about when people got married in the war and they were so young and they barely knew each other. And then they were separated for maybe years during the war and the way their relationships developed were through writing letters to each other. So when those people came home, were they real? You know, the ideas that they had about each other or were they curating these personas? Like, were they a truer impression of themselves or was it something that had been so carefully managed that the real person, you know, would never live up to it? So I, I started thinking about a scenario where how could you fall in love with someone just on the basis of their letters without ever having met them? And that kind of led me to this woman who would write these letters into the ether, thinking about 
what she wanted from love you know what were the ideas she had about love and that she was really writing them in the first instance for herself to really look at some of those questions and then I thought well if she just posted them and they had no address and they just said something like my great love on the envelope where would they end up and um, then the whole idea of the depot came to me of well where do all the lost letters go and then I had to find someone who would discover the letters <laughs> mm. and so the character of William Wolfe came into being but then I suddenly had this dilemma of why is this man so compelled by this mysterious letter writer like what is he searching for what's happening in his life and how has he come to this place where he can become so fixated upon an idea of a woman through her letters that he has never met. And so then that really opened up this whole idea for me around what might be happening in his life and in his love life previous to that moment. And kind of his marriage fell into place that he'd, you know, maybe already thought in his life that he had met his great love, mm -hmm. but things hadn't really turned out the way he'd expected. And um, so it kind of gave me this chance to look at this idea I really wanted to explore about that gap that exists between the way we see romantic love portrayed in films and in books and in music and then the pragmatic reality that most people have of sustaining a relationship over a long period of time that might not look ever like what they see on television or in movies you know and it's a totally yeah. different experience you know we're not all walking around in Paris and you know under yeah. an umbrella <laughs> in like a black and white movie um, and you know, how do you reconcile those two things? You know, if you've had this really romantic idea of what love might be in your life and then you find yourself 10 years, 15 years into a relationship and it doesn't look like that anymore. Does that mean it wasn't the real thing or does it mean that you are it's evolved into something different that might be better, even though it's, mm. you know, not like what you might expect it. So it kind of opened up this whole world for me then around thinking about that. And I was really interested in the idea that, you know, they had met when they were younger and committed to each other on the basis of what they thought they would become, you know, mm -hmm. what they imagined their future would be like. And then how do you reconcile that with how life actually evolves and you end up maybe turning into someone or growing into someone different than you might have expected? And I think there's a lot in that about in the book about, you know, the sort of disappointment, which I think is one of the hardest things to recover from. You know, sometimes it's almost easier to forgive a terrible act or a terrible mistake, you know, but actually the, someone disappointing you, it's it really cuts deep, I think. Um, mm, because so that's, it, yeah, it feels like it might be your own fault a bit as well or something like you kind yeah, of you brought yourself into it or something. Yeah. And it's almost like not something so ugly and irretrievable that yeah. you feel you have to break up the relationship. Yeah. You know, it's um, so you end up, as you say, kind of stuck in this sort of stagnant place of, OK, we're not really happy, but nothing really bad has happened. Mm. But we don't know how to get out of this rut. And, you know, at that point, then, you know, I guess a lot of people start fantasizing about, you know, how can I rejuvenate my life? would would someone else do that for me or if I had really met the person I'm supposed to be with would this have happened you know and people have to start asking themselves then can they can they rediscover the love that they want in their lives or the relationship they want in the relationship they already have or do you have to kind of break free and, and try and start again with someone else so that's a really long answer no, no, no. Question. <laughs> but it's it's amazing because it's completely flipped my notion of how this would have unfolded itself to you you know so like as all of those pieces were falling into place were you kind of struggling to keep up with yourself in terms of like actually writing all of this like because all of those ideas I mean, there's a knock 
helpful lot to all of those and they're all kind of connected so i know you you kind of you wrote in during a six month uh writers group is that was a, exactly. a writers group so i think i suppose one of the most intimidating things i think about starting a novel well for me and I, from other writers i've talked to is that you look at finished books and you think how could you go from sitting down to page one and get to 300 pages later and have worked out all of those things, you know, and mm. if, and if you feel at the beginning that you don't know how you would construct the whole big thing, it stops people from starting. But I think the reality certainly for me was much different in that it sort of unfolds for you bit by bit. So I began, you know, with that first chapter and I just sort of let the book kind of unfold for me over a period of time. And when you have the end of your first draft, then you can kind of take a step back and go, okay, so here is the structure of the story. Am I asking the questions I want to and am I answering them? You know, have I thrown balls in the air and not caught them again? And you get a second chance then to go through and, you know, upscale some things or downplay other things and introduce more light and shade or, you know, think about the way that the story is, is structured and move things around. And I think for most people, the end book looks an awful lot different from that first draft when they were working out what was going on. So now I can kind of sit here and chat to you and talk to you about the themes in the book and you know what what I hoped that it would be but as I was writing it I probably wouldn't have been able to do that because I didn't really know yet you know I just had kind of fragments of ideas and I didn't write it in a consecutive timeline I wrote the first chapter and then I wrote the end I always knew the kind of image that we would get to at the end mm. and um it I, and I just sort of jumped back and forth as different bits of the story became clear to me um and then at the end tried to piece it all together which was you know gosh ridiculous you know I, I was mm. changing seasons and uh time you know times of the year and you know it was just all over the place mm. but I think there's something very freeing about that because there are so many points in this novel where if I had tried to write it consecutively and and stopped waiting to work out what was going to happen next I would never have finished it because it was only by letting kind of following the energy to later on in the novel when I understood a piece of the story that it became clear to me how they got there you know if that makes sense so yeah yeah I think but you kind of build it up over a long period mm. and throughout this as well I guess through that though that six months you were getting feedback from other readers or the writers and a mentor I presume so yeah, was that exactly. feeding so, into it as well and that kind of cycle was happening Definitely. I think it's a really interesting thing, the writers group. Um, and a lot of this obviously hangs on the particular group, you know, because I know other people who've tried different writers groups and it hasn't quite worked for them. You know, it, they just haven't had the right chemistry or they haven't been kind of getting the feedback in the way that it was constructive for them. But we were really lucky that we had an absolutely amazing mentor for our class who really knew how to facilitate these feedback sessions so that it benefited everybody. And um, it was a very pragmatic approach. You know, you'd give in your 5,000 words and the way the class was structured then was people could only give you feedback with textual evidence. Mm -hmm. So nobody was able to say, oh, I just didn't really like that, mm. what you did this week, or, oh, I think it's all great. You know, you had to yeah. say, oh, I think these this character doesn't seem... Um, you know, this isn't ringing true for me in this moment because she says this and I remember earlier on she had made a reference to this or whatever. So it was all really, really constructive and you could mm. see the evidence in the text for why something was working or not working. And I think that was really beneficial because you kind of worked out 
what your blind spots were in your mm. own writing and what habits you had. And you could see, you know, if you were if you thought you were delivering something, but other, other people were receiving it differently. So it was really, really practical in terms of being able to interrogate your own writing. So by the end of the six months, then people were at different stages with their projects. But, you know, I was lucky that I had kind of a, like a first draft and it had been kind of built in that process where I'd had people kind of reacting to what I was doing and saying, oh, this is really working for me now. And one of the things or or, or not, as the case may be, but um, like one of the major things that came out of that workshop experience was William's wife, Claire, because mm. in the beginning, it was really clear to me that this was William's story. And even though I had done that kind of exploration around, you know, what his situation was that prompted him on to go on this journey of discovering this woman who was writing the letters, I hadn't thought that Claire would play that prominent a role. I sort of thought I would establish their relationship and then just move on from that. And after I had introduced her in the first chapter that you see in the book, um, everybody kept asking me in the workshop, oh, when is Claire coming back? And I was okay. like, what? No, no, we're finished with her. You know, no, mm. that's, that's it. That's all I was going to do. And they're like, no, but like, what's, you know, where's his wife when he's off gallivanting, you know, you know, trying to track this woman down. And I really want to know how she's feeling about this. And, you know, it just became really clear yeah. that it, it was one of those things where the, the book sort of told me what it needed to be before it was even really clear to me. Yeah. So she ended up obviously taking on almost like a dual narrative with William in terms of exploring yeah. their relationship. And she continues the whole way through. So I think that was one of the amazing things that came out of that kind of workshop where you're sort of getting live feedback from your readers. And you do have to be a bit sort of selective about what you take on because you're not writing a book by committee you know so sometimes people would make crazy suggestions and say oh have you ever thought about uh you know maybe this could happen and you're going no <laughs> you know yeah. I, you know I don't think aliens are really going to add um a, you know an important layer here <laughs> but or you know but and even in small ways so you have yeah. to kind of build up your confidence of knowing what things you want to hear and what things you don't want to hear but universally it was really helpful having this sort of live reading experience that you could know if you were kind of on the right track yeah of course sounds brilliant like and then I get the feeling from you as well just kind of hearing you talk about your characters now and by reading the book that were you one of those writers who kind of falls in love with their characters and when you came to the end was like at the end of the the writing process was there a kind of feeling of sadness abandoning your characters or well, letting them go there's there's a sentimental answer to this, which is that, you know, I do obviously really love and have a lot of empathy for them. There's a practical answer, which is by the time you get to the end of all your proofreading and everything, you never want to see this book ever again. <laughs> so I think it depends on where you, you know, what stage in the process. Now I've had a bit of time away from it. Mm. I, you know, I, I have definitely, you know, restored my love for them and, um, you know, have huge empathy for them. And sometimes I'm, you know, it's really funny because I'm doing events and people will have taken a really strong dislike, you know, to what William or Claire or Winter or one of the other characters. And, you know, I'll feel really hurt on their behalf going like not not me as the writer, but just I think you're being a bit harsh on Claire there, you know, and I yeah. feel like I have to kind of stick up for them because even though they're really flawed and they make terrible decisions and, you know, they all often do things that just have you going, oh, my God, how could he make this worse? <laughs> you know, I still I only have empathy for them. But I think by the time you get to the end of the process, you it's sort of like, OK, I'm, I'm done now. I'm ready to move yeah. on to something else. <laughs> but are there any I wonder parts of this that you could return to? Because it seems like there could be so much done with the Dead Letters Depot as a kind of a starting well, point. 
It's funny you should say that because um, the book has been optioned for television oh, okay. and um, the way that they, I mean, it's not gone into production or anything. So mm. I'm, I'm just for anyone who's not familiar with the optioning business, basically like a production company buy the rights to try and get the book made into television or film. So, you know, the options being picked up by these amazing women who run Main Street Productions who were responsible for Downton Abbey and Broadchurch and, wow. you know, loads of amazing things. That's a great so they, match. Yeah. It is. It's just they're, they're up. I just cannot believe it that, you know, I feel that these people have taken it on because they just have such an amazing understanding of what the book is and what I was trying to do. And they, they go off now and they try and, um, you know, get it developed and turned into production. So it could be a long time before we see it on television, but it might happen, which is amazing. Mm. But the way that they're approaching the, te- you know, the kind of adaptation of it, and I'll be working with them on, is that they want the life of the depot to live on beyond the end of my book. Mm. So it's a really interesting thing because I knew this question was going to come at some point in our plans because they said, so when we reach the end of the book, when we come back at the end uh, for the first episode of the new series, what's, you know, what's happening? You know, where is everyone and what's going to happen next? So it was the first time that I really opened myself up to the idea of, would there be a second book? Up until that moment, I had really felt I was finished with it, even though I could see there was so much life in the depot because Mm. it's this amazing gift to give yourself as a writer because anyone could be writing a letter about anything to anyone and any object could turn up in a parcel. So you get this chance to write all these, you know, as many as you wanted short stories in the midst of the main story. So um, I really sat down then and thought about you know, what would I do if I was going to write the next book? And I think if they do get that far in the television, I want to write the book first. And then obviously they can use that as source material or, you know, go off and do other things. But I would like to have had a chance to let to write the story first. So if you'd asked me before that, I don't think I ever would have said that there would be a sequel to it. But now I've really kind of opened up to the idea a bit more. This just sounds like another part of the whole the process that you've been going through like you your whole path to publication in a way was kind of irregular and how quickly it happened and um yeah you've kind of you went from did you go from like starting to write to publication in basically the space of a year um was it that wasn't that fast maybe but no I think I mean I suppose what you might be thinking of is that um well the first thing I ever wrote was the first chapter of the book yeah. So before that, I hadn't tried to write anything else. So this was the book I wrote to learn how to write a book, you know, and I guess I'm really, really fortunate in the sense that I got it published because for a lot of people, you know, you write a few books doing that and you might not necessarily get them published or they might not get picked up or, you know, millions of things happen that stop books getting published all the time. So I was really fortunate that I invested all this time in something that I did manage to get, you know, published in the end. Yeah. Um, so but I, I but I wrote it over a long period of time. OK like over maybe three or four years where sometimes I wouldn't touch it for six months or nine months because I just, you know, life would get in the way or work would get in the way and I would leave it resting and come back to it. But then at the point when I actually decided to send it out, it all happened really fast. So I guess I have been really lucky in the sense that the publishing bit you know happened really quickly for me but I sat in it for such a long time I mean if I know then if I knew then what I know now Mm. (laughs) I would have gotten this out there a lot quicker but um I mean after I'd finished the draft that I sent out to agents it was nearly two years before I sent it anywhere so it was just sitting you know as a file on my computer 
because I just I didn't really think it would ever get published. And I was sort of I mean, I, I didn't obviously at, at, at the time think, oh, I will wait two years before I send this out. It was more that I never made the decision that, OK, now is the right time to do it. It was just something that was sitting there that I always thought, oh, I'll come back to this and I will give it another pass and I will think about sending it out and time just ran away from me before I eventually reached the moment where I went oh my god it's been two years I really have to you know do something with this um and then I then it it, the the actual getting the agent bit and then getting the publishing deal bit you know happened really fast for me which is amazing but you, you kind of use the word luck there but it's obviously the result of a lot of hard work as well like and you've kind of you've achieved so much in terms of Obviously, you're like you're you you had a dream of working with Dave Fanning as well, and you got to do that for a few years and working in RT and like the dream of getting a book published. Have you kind of taken a chance to sit back and enjoy all of this? Well, it's it's an interesting question. I think um, it is true what you say that you know obviously so much work goes into writing a book and. It's, it's not like you just find your publishing deal down the back of the couch one day. You know, obviously you have to put so much effort into, you know, getting the book as ready as you can before you send it out. But I suppose the, where the luck bit comes in for me is that I'm just really conscious of how easy it is for it not to happen because there are so many books being submitted to literary agents and then literary agents are submitting so many books to publishers and you have to have the right person read your book at the right time and for it to be the right book for them. So the chances of the stars aligning just seem so unlikely, you know. So I think even though I worked really hard on it, I still feel really fortunate that it all just clicked into place for me, you know, because especially, I mean, I know so many writers and the people in my writing group who are working so hard and are brilliant writers and it's not the lack of hard work, work that has stopped them getting mm. published, but just, you know, things just haven't clicked in, in, the, in the right place for them at the right time. Mm. But it is really hard, I think, to ever stop and go okay I've done well or this is going well or you know it's a strange thing I don't know whether or not it's um something about you never know when is the right moment to celebrate your success because the minute one thing happens it triggers the next part of the process it's a really strange thing I've I've talked to some writer friends about this where you're sort of waiting for the moment that you talk speak of where you go okay you know, this is when I'm going to have the glass of champagne. But it always feels like you're tempting fate a little bit. I know this seems strange because no, like for, yeah. for me, it was always the dream. Like from when I was little, you know, I couldn't imagine anything better than walking into a bookshop and seeing, you know, your own book on the shelf. So it is absolutely a dream come true. But the living experience of it um, is kind of terrifying as much as it is amazing. And you kind of go through these different stages of the process where, you know, you get your literary agent says they're going to take you on and represent you and, you, and you're thrilled and that's amazing. And, you you know, you celebrate that. But then you have the immediate anxiety of, oh, now he's going to send it out to publishers. I wonder, will anyone want to publish it? And so you, you, you're sort of hesitating a bit to celebrate yet. And then you're delighted because you get your publishing deal and you're just about to celebrate that bit. And then you hesitate because you think, oh, I should wait and see what my editorial feedback is going to be because I've still a long way to go yet Mm. you know before it's actually going to be in the shops and then you finish your edit and you think okay brilliant um I'm 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 reached the end of this stage in the process so now's the time when I'll relax and celebrate and then it starts being sent out for review (laughs) and then you go okay I shouldn't celebrate just yet I should just wait and see how it starts to being received 
and um and then you get your first reviews in and you go okay okay it's actually it's okay everything's everything's looking good and then you think okay but I shouldn't tempt fate yet I'll wait and see um, how it does when it gets into the bookshops. And then you basically, by that stage, you're writing the next book and you think, OK, I shouldn't put all, you know, I shouldn't get too carried away. I have another big book that I have to write now, so I should focus on the writing of that. And it just sort of keeps going and you're always kind of waiting. I, I guess maybe if you wake up one morning and you're told that you're like the number one bestseller in the New York Times or something at that point, you go, OK, I can relax for a bit and really enjoy this. But I think there's so much work involved the whole way through that it always feels like kind of an ongoing um, process. And I mean, it's the most amazing kind of anxiety to have, but it doesn't mean it doesn't sort of feel really terrifying at times. Because it's also just ambition, I suppose. You're always kind of thinking ahead and thinking of the next step and wanting to succeed in the next part and just a constant kind of human thing. Yeah, and it's like everything in life. You sort of have to enjoy the process because mm. the end result may never come. You know, you might never get to the bit that you think is going to be the bit that you'd be really happy about. Um, and I think for, I mean, the vast majority of people and writers who are working, you're always sort of moving on to the next thing. So it's, I'm not sure a time ever comes where you're really resting on your laurels and thinking, oh, well, great, I've made it now. This is brilliant because you're focused on the next project and you're writing mm. the next book and you're, you know, hoping that this will be a long-term thing and that you can keep keep going, keep it going, you know. So, mm. and it's so easy for it to all get taken away. You're kind of always waiting to see if the next one will be published, if the next one will be published, you know. So it's it's um, not something I think you, anyone will ever really take for granted. Yeah. But the last letters of William Wolf paperback is coming out in May and potentially at least ideas for future returns to the depot in the form of a TV show coming up. And the difficult second album or novel is on its way too. And so like maybe not to talk too much about the, the next one yet, because I think people are afraid of jinxing things as well. But like, could you tell me, like, what did you learn from writing the first novel that is kind of feeding into the second one? Like was yeah, the you said you said that process of the first one was that idea of that's this is the first one to kind of lead on to the second one and then the second one will be better. So what have you learned from the writing Lost Letters of William Wolfe? Gosh, so many things. Mm. Um I think I think the the most important thing that I learned um was that for me the inspiration bit happens when I create the opportunity for it. So I think for a long time I thought that I needed you know, the perfect environment and the perfect mood and the perfect length of time to be able to work on the book. And that's why the first one took me so long, because, you know, I would think, oh, gosh, I'm too stressed now with work or there's too much going on or we're going away next week and I won't get a run at it. And, you know, there would be I would always be sort of letting the work not happen because of the environment that I was in. And then I just, you know, I just I've realized that you once you actually start working, nine times out of 10, it will happen. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, sitting in a busy coffee shop or you're sitting at home at your office or you've got 10 minutes or 10 hours. If if you create the opportunity, the work will usually follow. And sometimes you have to write your way into it. You know, you mightn't feel like, oh gosh, I'm in the right frame of mind to be thinking about this now, or I'm in the right mood. But most of the time, if you start, something will happen. Um, so that I think that has been the most valuable thing that I've learned about just sort of keep pushing on. And 
secondly, I, I was less afraid this time about not knowing all the answers at the beginning. You know, there were, I was racked with anxiety writing the first book because I wasn't sure how I was going to resolve some of the things, you know, at the beginning. You know, there were loads of questions I had around how, you know, the plot would unfold and how I was going to address different things with the characters. And, you know, I would worry about the fact that I didn't have all the answers. And this time I felt a lot freer about you know, writing to find out those things. Mm. So I think both of those really set me free. And the process of writing the second novel, for me, it wasn't as difficult as I expected. You know, I was really nervous before I started because I thought maybe the first one was a fluke and this is never going to happen again. <laughs> but actually just kind of having more of a writing habit made it so much easier. And um, I'm just sort of about to do the last pass. I'm working on the final edit of it at the moment. So we're we're really close to the end of it. And actually, the first chapter of the new book is going into the paperback that's coming out in May. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I love yeah, when so, that happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it's sort of like a bit of a just, they, I think they called it a sneak preview. of what's Yeah, going. yeah. So yeah, people get a sense of what the next book's going to be about, which is brilliant. Oh, uh, excellent. Brilliant. Can't wait to read it, Helen. Thanks so much for talking to me on Right Stuff. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It was great to chat to you. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.